Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, welcome to the Meat Eater. Uh, I changed the name. It's now the Meat Eater Digital Radio Program. I like that better. There's a bunch of people here. I'm going to introduce them to like how if I, if I was dealing poker. By going clockwise, Giannis Putellis, Baja Yanni, this is his new name. Garrett Smith, who has a distended belly right now, and he's and he's got a chew packed, and somehow they're related. Like the chew is going <laughs> to alleviate his distended belly. I think he was trying to tell us in some kind of subtle way. Um, Chris Gill, like a fish, like a fish. Who's a turkey man now? You just heard your first turkey gobble. I did. Is that true? Uh, I think it is, yeah. I can't remember hearing one before that. Yeah. I mean, you know, other than digitally. Yeah. yeah. And then Dr. Carl Malcolm. Carl, tell us about the Wisconsin Super Sow. Man, the Wisconsin Super <laughs> Sow. The Wisconsin, this is the most, this is it. Yeah, tell us about the Wisconsin Super Sow. All right, so a little backstory. Yep. Get it, lay it all out. Lay it all out. All right. I mean, within reason. Okay. So, so my mom met my father. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it all began right around 1980. Um, all right, so I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which, by the way, was the first wildlife management program anywhere in the world, founded by Aldo Leopold after he left the Forest Service. That was one of the draws for me, being kind of a Leopold junkie growing up. Um, but going to Madison, I was in kind of the southern farm belt region of Wisconsin. And as you travel north in the state of Wisconsin, you increasingly get into more and more forested landscapes to the point where you get up into the northern part of the state and the northern third 
is predominantly forested. So about halfway up, you're in this interesting mix where you've got about a 50-50 ratio of row crops like corn and soybeans and forest. And our good friend Doug Dern is south of that line. Yep, he's south of that line. He's in just like solid ag. No, well, defining, I def, like the defining feature, or how would you put it? You know, so the Driftless area, the southwest part of the state where Doug Duran is located, is, is interesting because it does have a major agricultural component, but there's certainly a lot of forest land, and part of that is because there's so much slope, mm-hmm. which is unusual for the rest of the oh, state. so they couldn't get in there and till it. Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's some untillable land, which is where you typically have forest there in the Driftless area. And this relates to the story because what's been happening for the last few decades is that black bears throughout the Midwest are increasingly expanding their range southward. So I don't know if Doug has any stories about bears showing up in his property in the Driftless area yet. Not yet, because I feel like if he did, I would have heard about it. Yeah, well... Because he'll tell you about everything down to a grinner showing up. (laughs) You know what I mean? I imagine he would. And... I, I predict that he will have that story before too long because certainly now, bears. Why, why, why are bears marching south? Like my theory on it, and this is completely untested and probably you probably, I'd recommend you do not publish a paper on this. Is that it just took them 150 years to get used to people. I think that's not like, the case. You <laughs> so, so what I think it has to do with is persecution. So okay. black bears are extremely, adaptable with their diet. You know, everybody knows they're like the classic omnivore. They'll eat anything. They can subsist on vegetation purely. They can do very well chowing down on meat. And typically speaking, they're eating some combination of the two. So they can exist just about anywhere where there's, where there's food for them. Yeah, and you know, my neighbor, uh, in, at my Alaska cabin, he's telling me about a guy that had a bear come into his workshop and drink three gallons of gear oil. That's unreal. I wonder if it killed it. If it didn't, it probably tore some gastrointestinal uh, oh, situations yeah. Garrett thinks, up. Garrett thinks <laughs> yeah. a little dip will do it for you. But. See, I, was, I, was debating, I was debating whether or not to go there, but I took the high road and let you take it there. So <laughs> thanks for bailing me out. So, so great omnivores. Yeah, phenomenal omnivores. So the point is they're, they're really adaptable. They can live just about anywhere as long as they're not being shot to the point where it's not sustainable. You know, if, like anything else, if you shoot enough of them or you know, trap enough of them, if you eliminate enough from the, from the population, they're not going to exist in a particular part of the state anymore. So the bears, like many other species um, that are managed by state agencies as hunted species, have been on an upward trajectory since their low point when they weren't being managed as such. So essentially, bears, like many other species, were persecuted by unregulated hunting for a long time and driven out. You mean we're just like no rules about take and it doesn't matter what time of year, saw with cubs, whatever you could yeah. at a time shoot a bear and there was no Yeah, re- just like everything else, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, at a time, that's how it was for all these species. But under, managed, uh, under a management scenario where we're tracking populations, we're making sure that the, the number of bears taken is sustainable, um, they are showing that they're capable of existing well outside of what people think of as bear country, including places like Southwest Wisconsin, which historically certainly had bears and now increasingly has bears showing up. Places like Richland County, as an example. Well, that's Doug's County. Yeah, right. Oh. That's why I'm throwing it out there for you. 
Yeah, our I place. almost feel like calling Doug up right now. If he if he doesn't have a bear story about his property, he will soon. He'll have well, he will soon, I think, and he'll certainly have bear stories from other people's properties. So part of the equation here with the expanding bear population is the super sow and bears like her. And the super sow was an individual bear that was part of my research project when I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin. Who, but tell, tell, what, the, tell what you were doing. Okay, so I was looking at that spatial expansion. So okay. what I was doing, I was, I was specifically focused on dispersing sub-adults. So black bears are really interesting in that you know, they're, they're born in the den. So they, they emerge into the world um, with their mother in the den and basically just latch on and nurse for the first couple months of their lives. And then the family emerges from the den in the spring. Can I, I got to ask you the question. Bring it. What's the difference between precocial? They're not precocial. They right. are... Altricial. Altricial. Yeah. So they're born in a state where essentially um, they're relatively underdeveloped. They're tiny. Their limbs are barely formed when they're born. And they basically just navigate from the birth canal to a nipple, latch on, and bears in general, including black bears, crank out some of the most calorie-dense milk anywhere in the animal kingdom. It's like liquid butter coming from those nipples. So they grow really fast. And man, they I've been, do... I've been after the wrong nipples my whole life, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. So as an example, you know, I had my hand on a lot of bears um, during the field work. And when you'd go to work up a den that had a sow with cubs, the sows would be lactating. And there were a number of times where... Explain working up a den. But uh, here's a checklist for you. <laughs> Pre-co- I want you, I to, I want you to do a quickie. Pre-co- pre-cocial, altricial. Mm-hmm. Do a quickie on that. Okay. And then don't just say work up a den because no one's going to know what the hell that means. Okay. All right. Pre-cocial, altricial. So... Species that are born precocial have the ability to do things like evade predation. So, for example, like pronghorn fawns, when they're born, it's a matter of days before they're up on their feet and able to cruise if a predator shows up. Mm-hmm. All right. Altricial species are born in a state where they still have a lot of development to go. So, we're, uh, humans are altricial. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a infant is not going to evade predation. It's got to be protected, just yeah. like a bear cub. All right. Now, working up a den, essentially what I'm referring to is going into uh, a place where bears are hibernating. They've been located either because they've got a radio collar or someone from the public has encountered a den and contacted through some avenue researchers like myself. And we go into the den with typically a pole syringe or a jab stick, Mm -hmm. which is basically envisioned like a broom handle with a big syringe and a needle on the end. And the goal is to be able to give the bear an injection in some major muscle without putting yourself in harm's way. So you're either trying to get an injection somewhere like in the buttock or in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Those are the two best spots to try to get a stick. And the dens, you know, when people think of a bear den, most folks are thinking like, a hole in the ground with bears piled up in it. A cave. A cave. Yeah. But a lot, and, and sometimes that is the case. But I would say, man, probably around half the time, they're above ground, maybe in like a, a slash pile where they've kind of carved out a little nest, 
or sometimes just laying on the ground in the wide open. Yeah, you were saying you found them denned up just under like some boughs, over, under overhanging evergreen boughs. Yeah, I found them, you know, I found them denned up in places where they really have almost no cover. They're just like laying there in the snow, getting snowed on. And the cubs will be curled up against their bellies. Um, and it doesn't look like they put any effort at all into seeking like shelter of any form. So highly variable what these dens look like. Do you have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to just ask if you have, like, has that always been like that? Like when you read older papers, did they have research that shows that as well? Or do you feel, do you have a hypothesis on maybe why that's, is it happening more now than it used to? Like or the expanding this, bears aren't finding good spots? Yet? No, man. Or maybe they don't need to because the winter's not as tough. Well, I mean, in some places they don't even hibernate, right? Right. I mean, they, and hibernation is a whole different subject. You know, they're not technically true hibernators. They go into like a seasonal sort of downturn in their metabolism, but they're not a true hibernating species. Um, so I don't think it's something that has changed. I think it's part of their life history. Um, so no, I don't, I do not think that the denning without a hole in the ground is something that is new for black bears. I think it's part of their life history. It has been part of their life history. They basically do what they need to do to survive. Some bears one year will make a den the next year, not, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. One interesting pattern that was true throughout my research and was conveyed to me by other folks who have done a lot of bear handling is that an individual bear will not use the same den location twice ever. And in some cases, including, I thought thought it was twice in a row, but they'll alternate. I've, I've never seen a bear go back to the same place. And the people with whom I have done my research have never seen a den get reused. Would it make sense? There's a guy I know in Northern Wisconsin. Okay. Um, his last name is Hart, maybe Bill Hart. He owns a t-shirt shop. Where's Northland College? Something like that. There is Northland College. I can't remember the town. They, they have a thing called the Seagird F. Olson Nature Writing Award. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I won that award and was hosted by this man, Bill Hart. He took me down and showed me an undercut bank on his property where every other year there's a black bear with cubs in there. And there's a little hole he can even look in there. So maybe it's different bears. It's just a spot. Maybe it's different bears. Maybe it's the same bear disproving this pattern that I observed. I'm sure. Listen, I hate guys like, I hate people that do what I just did. Wait. Because you're trying to talk about like generally, right? Yeah. You're like, generally it's bad to smoke tons of cigarettes. And then someone's like, my grandpa, you know. (laughs) So it's like, yeah. Anyhow, interesting side note. This fella by the last name of Hart. I will go on to say this. I guarantee you, in the history of American black bears, <laughs> a bear has reused a den. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm trying to say, man. Generally speaking, <laughs> yeah. black bears do not reuse den sites. And this, this super saw that you asked about is a really interesting example of this because she denned in the same like 100 yard by 100 yard area, but chose different locations within this small footprint during really? the years that Do I found it. Do you think they're her. worried about disease transmission of some sort? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's, 
who knows, man, trying to get into the mind of a bear is what we're doing here. And I, I think it's, but I, I know like, yeah, it's impossible. When you're talking about like why things do things. Yeah. Why animals do things. Yeah. A lot of people say like, for instance, the other day, my friend Hart, he's got a bear that comes back to the same dead. (laughs) Bill Hart. Uh, He's convinced it's the same bear. It might be. It could be. Yeah. And I don't think I said like, never has a bear done this. I'm not taking you to ask. I'm just, I'm just asking a point. I like it. I like it. Um, an annoying thing people do, and I do it all the time, is you'll say, let, let me give you an example. I was yesterday admiring some turkeys that we shot on our turkey hunt. It's a Miriam's turkey, and a Miriam's turkey has a lot of white on the end of their feathers. I was saying, I wonder if that has to do with heat. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances it's a struggle to find time to manage my finances you go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting you know your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use but now you use rocket money and does all of that for me i'll tell you this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch and they lure you in with a one-month trial, and you're like, oh, you know, I'll do the one-month trial, then I'll come back and cancel, then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it, and then, and then a year goes by, and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, 
We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Reducing how many how much radiant surface because it's a, it's an animal from the southwest, very intense sun. An eastern turkey has a lot of black on it. Maybe these turkeys have a lot more white on them as an adaptive advantage about radiant heat. Like maybe that's a problem, getting too hot. So I think that when you look at stuff, you'd be, you'd say, like you, I can't say that that's why those turkeys evolved that. What do you call that pelage? But what would you call it? I'd call it that. Okay, I can't say that's why those turkeys evolved that pelage. But I could say that could be something to do with it, or, or that it could have that effect in reducing radiant heat. Sure. So, but I find talking to scientists like yourself, I'll be like, oh, do they do it? Do the bears not want to go back? Maybe because of mites or some kind of thing like that. I know you don't know all the way. But is that a reasonable? Yes, it's a reasonable idea. It's a reasonable idea. Sure. Yeah. What would be another reasonable idea? Maybe to be unpredictable. You know, if they've got a den that has been there on the ground for X number of months and a certain number of animals have encountered that den and become aware of its existence, then there might be some adaptive advantage to moving locations. Yeah. You know, especially if you have those extremely altricial cubs to look after. Um, You know, basically the onus is entirely on a mother bear to make sure those cubs get to the point where they can climb a tree and they've got a long road to hoe from the time they're born before they're to that point. Yeah. Cause they're born in the middle of the winter, right? Yeah, that's right. Like February or March or something like that. Yeah. Late January. Really? Yep. And then, like I said, you know, when, when they're born, they're, they're tiny. And by the time they're coming out of the den, they've gone from being, you know, like something you'd hold in the palm of your hand to being something that's four, five, six, maybe seven pounds. And so the mother has, she's got to bring all that, all those calories, all that energy into the den with her, both to maintain that pregnancy and deliver the cubs and then provide enough nutrition through her milk to get them to the point where when they emerge from the den, she can woof at them and they're ready to climb. Because once they leave the den, you know, she's, she's not in a position to just protect them yeah. the way she can while they're, while they're all balled up in a pile. Dogs, other bears, all manner of things. Sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So that's Chris one. Gill, you, you covered on everything so far? Oh, yeah. You Tracking. look like you're dozing off. No, man, I'm sharp. I am sharp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. It is fascinating stuff. And by the way, one of the highlights of this week, turkey hunting. Yeah, you guys almost got killed by a bear? No, we didn't almost get killed. <laughs> we, had, we had two bear encounters this week, though. Um, the first one was going out, trying to locate some birds in the evening, and I heard what sounded like a cub kind of 
bowling down the hill from us. And then a bunch of claw marks on a tree. And then what had to have been the sow popping her teeth. And given how late it was in the day, I decided not to take the shotgun with me. I was just kind of strolling up the hill. And when I heard that sow popping her teeth, I was like, yeah, let's, let's <laughs> stroll take the other this way. other direction. Yeah. And then uh, what was even a cooler sighting was, uh, it was yesterday morning, man. Saw the the biggest bear I've seen since coming to New Mexico, and it was also the blondest bear. This great big boar, and uh, had him. Well, I was, I was putting a decoy in the ground and heard a twig pop and looked over, and he was no more than seventy yards away, looking at me through the trees, and he was just beautiful. And then we we set up a couple more times, and he came back in to check us out, and he was woofing at us from up the hill. So. We all got a good look at him. It's just a beautiful animal, man. They're and you're getting a lot amazing. of bear vocalizations, which is yeah. unusual. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was telling you, I one time was hand calling to a tom, to a gobbler, and heard an exhale over my shoulder. Like how someone would do, like they're a little bit tired from walking up a hill. And it was a bear, I mean, arm's distance. That, that might be an exaggeration. Extremely close. Yeah. Enough where I could like... I could hear it breathe. Yeah. He's coming to kill that hen. And when I turned around, man, it scared the shit out of him. Yeah. And it scared the shit out of me. I believe it. <laughs> he freaked out. Yeah. Yeah, he did not like that a bit, man. Yeah. yeah, and that big one yesterday, when he first saw me, he went partway up a tree and decided that wasn't his best course of defense. Came back down the tree, making so much noise, breaking big branches, claws scraping down the side of the tree, and then tore off up the mountain. And it surprised me that he, he came back in to check us out when we were calling again. So I don't know if the turkey... He went and got pumped up. Maybe, yeah. He's just, like, come on, dude. Your whole life you've been running. <laughs> go down there. You've got that guy by at least two and a half bills. <laughs> it was an awesome animal, man. Okay, Wisconsin Super Sow. Okay, Wisconsin Super Sow. So aside from the fact that she came back to the same oh, general... Back, I, need, I need more background. Okay. How many bear dens have you dug up? I would have to look at my notebook to give you an give exact rough answer. Heat. I would say, oh gosh, in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 dens, something like that, that I've been All out All sows or, or everybody? No, no. So I should give you a little more context on the research project. So we're interested in this expansion of black bears south in their range. So individuals moving farther and farther south. And as you know, from all the other species that show up in crazy places, like mountain lions showing up in New York state, you know, these Mm. critters that go hundreds of miles, typically it's these young males dispersing that go great distances. So I was really interested in looking at the dispersal behavior of black bears. So what I needed for that research project was to get GPS collars on yearling bears and a little bit more about the biology of the species Uh, i got you i got you yeah so born in the den they get up to let's say five pounds come out of the den with mom in the spring keep growing still really dependent on mom for their defense spend that whole spring summer fall by mom's side like in sight of mom or in sound range of mom and if something's going wrong all that mother bear has to do is give a woof and the cubs know they got to get up the nearest tree. So what a lot of people don't know is that when that second winter comes around, now you've got mama bear and a bunch of, you know, we call them yearlings, but they're less than a year old. They're just about to complete their first year. 
they all den up together again. So you'll have a bear den that might have, let's say a sow that weighs 230 pounds. And then she's got X number of one-year-old cubs, some of which might weigh as much as 100 pounds themselves, all piled up together. So it could be a huge like biomass of bear in a heap. You're just in there sorting it all out. Yeah, and, and <laughs> especially if they're underground. You know, you, so I mentioned, I described this, this pole syringe that you use to sedate the bears. And if they're underground, you know, you got like a headlamp and you're looking in there and it's a dark hole and a dark animal. And they're, the way that they're piled up, it's like super spooning. It's like a tangled mass of limbs and heads and trying to figure out where one bear ends and another bear begins. And you don't even know how many bears there are down in the hole. Yeah, it's like when our kids crawl in with me and my wife, man. Yeah, just, just tangled like up. You wake up, it's hard. You can't get out. So you're like, is that, is that Steve's thigh? <laughs> or, you know, it, it, you, you have no idea. So it, can, it, it was and it is a nerve-wracking thing at first to intentionally go up to a den and try to sedate these animals. And you got to sedate the cubs too. You have to sedate the cubs when they're in that second yeah. winter. Yeah, when they'll tear you up. Th- well, yeah, and they're you know they're hundred pounds, hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. And, and they don't know what's going on. They want to get away, and you don't want to you don't want to fracture that family unit prematurely either. So you want to get everybody sedated. Gotcha. And then you before, because you don't want one to run off. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and that can happen. You can have individuals that you know try to make a getaway. So. That's what I'm talking about when I say working up a den, yep, going I'm in to sedate know. them. And then you're getting, and you're some, taking some you're getting measurements, you're taking um, blood samples. You know, there are other research projects. People were looking at a variety of other topics with respect to these bears. And one of the projects, they're interested in, in milk, in, in the bear milk. And I mentioned to you the fat content of bear milk, and we segued several different times since then. But I wanted to mention... On several occasions, I've had bear milk on my hands when I'm doing this in the winter. And obviously, it's gone from bear body temperature out to wintertime temperature. And it's almost instantaneous that it turns into a solid. And you can smear it between your fingers and it feels, it feels like butter. I mean, it, it's, so, it's got right, so really? much fat in it that the second you take it away from that, that body heat from the mother, it turns into a solid. And obviously for the cubs, it's just going straight from bare body temperature to bare body temperature inside the cub's mouth yeah, while it's you. ingested. But if it gets out in that winter air, it is like a solid material. So pretty fascinating stuff. So those cubs are putting on a ton of weight. And the number of offspring that a single sow has in a given year is linked directly to her body condition. So a bear that goes into the den in good condition will have more cubs than a bear that goes into a den in poor condition. And one of the ways that this is controlled is that black bears have what's called delayed implantation. So they get pregnant and these little fertilized eggs just kind of float around in the womb for a little while. And then when the time is right, the body is communicating to the brain what kind of condition it's in. And there are a variety of chemical uh, interactions that scientists believe drive this relationship. One of, one of the keys is likely to be uh, leptin, which is in circulation in a, in a uh, in amount proportional to body fat. So a really fat bear, its body is telling its brain, I'm in really good shape. 
its brain's telling its body, we should be having more cubs than in a poor year. And more of those fertilized embryos will implant yeah. into the uterus wall and turn into cubs. Dude, can you imagine if humans had delayed implantation, the implications <laughs> it'd have? I'm imagining it. We'd still be, we'd, uh, my wife would still have three floating in there. I'd be like, no, not quite yet. Not quite I like yet. no one are there, but not quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty, it's, it's amazing stuff, man. Yeah, the animal the, kingdom. What's the maximum, uh, when you say that, how many does she have in reserve? Like how many could she have? That's a, it's a great question, and I, I don't know the answer to it. But I can tell you that in the literature, there are very, very few instances where six cubs have been documented being born to a single mother in a given okay. year. So that seems to be about the max. Six is like, you know, like the less than once in a blue moon number. What's the national average? Two to three is really common. Two to three is really common. And imagine... You know, you asked about a national average. Obviously, depending on where you are on the map, you're going to have different food resources. And then even in a given location, year to year, it's highly variable. Think about, you know, in a lot of these systems, acorn mast crop is a key driver. So if you're in a place that's, let's say, got a lot of white oak and it's a mast year, you should expect those sows to have more fat and more cubs. And when it's a mast poor year and they're forced to some relatively inferior calorie poor food source, yeah. lower body condition, fewer cubs. Makes sense. All right, hold it there for a minute. Okay. Yanni, any questions? You cool on everything up to this I'm, point? I'm cool. I can tell you that where there won't be a lot of cubs coming out of dens this year, and that's in Kentucky and Tennessee. That's right. We know that firsthand. <laughs> Garrett, you straight? Yep. Still got that dip? Yeah, I am curious about the <laughs> the 100-yard square, like yeah. if that had a reason to it with the super sow. Man, it's a... It's a like how many... She, t- she denned how many times within a, a little chunk of ground? Three times I visited that sow in this little area. What were the three dens? So two times, it was this interesting place. It was on private property. The landowner gave us permission to do the work. If I remember right, it was... It was uh, the Pettis Farm was the name of this place. And there were some stump piles there. The farmer had cleared out, you know, some ag fields and piled up a bunch of stumps. Yep. So on two of those occasions, the sow was in a stump pile, but it was not the same stump pile, okay. two separate stump piles. And then on the third occasion, occasion, she was above the ground and close to those stump piles. Just laying out. Just laying out with a pile of, pile of yearlings. So How in the world does that work? I don't know, man, but I can tell you, like... Like, the, how do they not... It's, so it's just laying there. Like a dog could walk up and start eating the young. If a dog walked up and tried to start eating the young, it would not go favorably for the dog. But even though she's in a semi-stuporous state. Yes, and that's another sort of misconception. When you approach a den, and I should probably have prefaced the conversation about so-called working up dens with a disclaimer, like no one, if you find a bear den, should be messing with it. Just no. leave them alone, <laughs> let them do their thing. Yeah. Now, when you come up to a den, it's not like the bear is laying there in suspended animation, oblivious to your presence. The vast majority of the time, when I would get to the point of trying to figure out how many bears are in the den, is, it, is you know, the den above ground or below ground, by the time I found the, the location and was looking at the bear, the bear was aware of my presence and looking back at me. Clacking so, its jaw at you? Sometimes, yeah. but aware. It's not like they're, you know completely sedated already and you just walk up and give a sleeping bear a shot they know you're there and 
the, the speed at which they can go from being in this metabolically uh, slow state to just being like with it and running away, you know, is, is remarkable. I mean, they can, they can go from idle or sub idle speed to full RPMs in a matter of minutes. It's really a, an amazing thing that the, their bodies can do. That's like me in the morning before a turkey hunt. That's right. You guys notice <laughs> that? Yeah, as long as you got some of that, that yeah, great I, camp yeah. coffee. <laughs> Yanni wakes me up. And before I can even think about getting up, he's got the jet boils around and everything's happening. Yeah, you guys run a Goblin. tight ship. <laughs> yeah. You guys run a tight ship. Now, Chris, are you cool on everything? Yeah, man. Right. Actually, I do have a question. Bring it. Um, so average is two to three cubs per per uh, litter. Per yep. litter. Yep. How many cubs, like how many litters can a bear have in her lifetime? Well, is it, it just one or is it? It depends on one key variable, which is how long she lives. Oh, okay. So. But they can't, they don't do it every year though. They do it no, every year. No, that's exact. Well, typically that's right. Yeah. So bear in mind again, those cubs are born. Let's say year one, the cubs are born. Mama's got that responsibility for year two, right? She's denning with them again. So she can't give birth to a new litter and care for last year's litter. Yeah. So that's why there's this cycle where it's a litter and then it's rearing last year's litter and then they're gone. And then it's a litter and it's rearing that litter and then they're gone. And how old are they when they become sexually mature? <sighs> it depends on diet, but you can have bears that are reproducing at two years of age. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 
20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability and way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or T-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Yep. So, so they're, not, they're, they're not doing this that many times. Well, you could have, well, I, you I could shot, have a I shot style. a black bear boar one time. They aged at 17. I don't yeah. know how accurate that they is. Can get a, I mean, they can live into their 20s. It depends. You know, the biggest thing is... is uh, Honestly, how how hard hunted the population is? Yeah, that's like the leading cause of mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. But you could you could you know in a in a situation where a sow has avoided predation and made it to her twenties, she might have had eight litters. Wow, nine litters. So they can crank out a bunch. Now this sow that I'm talking about, the, the super, super sow. <laughs> Who named it that? I, I named her that. <laughs> Sweet. Because she, she You're was amazing. You're up all night. What would be the perfect would be name? The perfect name? Super, yeah. I'm a fan of alliteration, so it kind of has a ring to it. Um, she really stood out because I mentioned I visited her three times. The first year I visited her, she had five cubs, which was noteworthy in and of itself. She's the only bear during my research project with five cubs ever. And what did she weigh? That's a good question. I'd have to look at my notes again on that. But, but she, was, was, she, she was big. She, she was, was big. Not, not like a monster, but she was in the neighborhood of 200, 220, somewhere in there. So not, not like, holy cow, it's a humongous Yeah, I wish I would have re-read, re-read yeah. my paper on this if I knew I was going to get all these questions. But it's a, it's a cool topic for sure. So let's say she was in the neighborhood of 220 pounds. Yeah. All right. She has five cubs. That's big, but not extraordinary. Yeah. It's a good, a nice big sow, healthy yeah. sow. So she's got these five cubs. The first, first time I'd seen that, really cool deal. And so I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, all right, here are five cubs now, but next year I can come back and I'll have five yearlings for my research project. Because then when they're yearlings and they emerge from the den, that's when the family unit splinters, all right, breaks up. And oftentimes that coincides with the spring breeding season. So the males are starting to chase mom around. The yearlings don't want to be in the neighborhood anymore. Mom isn't caring for them anymore. And the females will typically go a relatively short distance when they disperse. Sometimes their home ranges as adults will even overlap a little bit with the home range of their mothers. And those young males can go phenomenal distances, like on the order of tens to hundreds of miles they'll cover and then set up shop in a new place. So 
I've got five bears that I'm hoping the following winter I'll be able to put GPS colors on for my research project. But the odds are slim that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, she's good. They're all going to live. Well, I shouldn't say the odds are slim because we actually had pretty high survivorship of bears that we found as cubs and then relocated as yearlings. Okay. Most of them survived. Gotcha. But, you know, you got your hands full with five offspring to deal with. I come back to the den the next year hoping to find five yearlings. There are five yearlings. And not only are there five yearlings, but they're big. Like they've thrived. They've done really, really well. What's big? Like 100 pounds. Okay. So they've gone from five pounds to 100 pounds in a year. And the, the males were bigger than the females. The females, you know, 70 pounds, let's say. So there's 700 pounds worth of bears. A pile of bears, <laughs> yes. A 700-pound blob of black bears. A heap of black bears. Six like of them. Yeah, six bears all piled up. That's incredible. So one of my grad school colleagues, a guy named Dave McFarland, who's uh, working for the Wisconsin DNR now as, a, as an ecologist, he and I were tasked with getting those bears handled and collared. And those five became subjects of my research. And then another year goes by and I go back in to this same sow. She's done in that same general area and she has five newborn cubs again. So she has successive litters of quintuplets and that's amazing in and of itself. Furthermore, we weighed her that first year. We weighed her the second year. We weighed her the third year. And over the course of birthing and weaning those 10 cubs, she put on on the order of 50 pounds of weight. Gaining weight. Gaining weight while cranking out calories like nobody's business. So that's how she got the moniker of Supercell. Yeah. Yeah, so back-to-back litters of quintuplets. I mean, 10 cubs over the span of three years. And then I started getting stories, too. One of, the, one of the coolest stories was from some Wisconsin Department of Transportation guys who had seen the sow with those five yearlings, and they were going and scavenging deer carcasses that the DOT guys had picked up and taken to like a dump site. So that was her secret. Well, that was part of her secret. The other part of it was she was living in this landscape where there's corn, like 50% corn and 50% oak forest. And she's just translating all those calories into bare biomass through her reproduction. But now, didn't she do it again though? So what she did again was rear those five cubs to the point that they were yearlings and dispersed. And at that point, I was done tracking that sow. Did any of the 10 that you watched her bring to yearlinghood? Yearlinghood. Did any go south? Yes. What percent yeah. went south? So out of, those, out of those 10 specific cubs, I do not know the answer to that. But I can tell you that there was a statistically significant skewing of the data where the bears were moving in a southerly and easterly direction from that sort of central forest part of the state. Like like moving initially or winding up? Winding up. Winding up. Yeah. So they were, they were checking for territory and finding unoccupied locations. I th- yes, that's certainly true. And I think one of the things driving it was not only were they finding unoccupied locations, but they were finding unoccupied locations with ad libitum, in other words, unlimited food supply. And no competition. 
And another really cool thing that happened because these GPS collars, you know, they've just revolutionized wildlife research. Because rather than going out there with like an antenna and trying to locate the radio signal, you're just getting thousands and thousands of locations. And I had a handful of bears that made these really interesting forays into totally new areas where they'd never been before. And distances of dozens, sometimes as much as 40 or 50 miles. And then they'd return to the area where they were born. And then they'd go back to that place that they had explored and set up shop there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They come back to get their stuff. Well, I, you know, I think it was like <laughs> get their stuff out of storage. Know, you know, again, trying to trying to. Yeah, yeah, no, I got to go to storage. No, you know, it's, it's wild, hard to get man. in the mind of a bear. They'd go but, find a spot. If for whatever reason, come back where they came from. Yeah, and then go back to their spot. Yeah. Do you want to see some of these data points? Well, I will, but I mean, not right now. Okay. But I'd love to. All right. I looked at one time. We'll put some. If you want to share, we'd put some of these up for listeners to go check out yeah because i also find this link where i looked at one time how a wolverine uses a mountain for a year yeah and it was just his marks of all the places he went on a mountain yeah which was looking at it seemed like very haphazard yeah but probably made some kind of sense to him yeah you know it's got to be a reason for it man so one pioneering bear yep the wisconsin super sow <laughs> Moves into a new area, semi-new. Yeah, I mean, she was at the southern extent of what you consider like the core bear range of the state. And in the course of four years, produces 10 offspring, Mm -hmm. weighing 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. Some of them move south more. Mm -hmm. So if you see a bear, you listeners show up in your neighborhood, think of Carl. Yeah. They're coming. Carl, you you could do your thoughts last. Okay. Yeah, you, you're gonna, here's the deal. You're going to have to come back on, though. I'm down for that. We didn't even talk to you about what I was going to talk to you about. Let's, we'll do it again. Yanni. I'm doing my job here. Just keep your job. I'm telling you why. Petting a dog. Garrett's rubbing his tummy. What do you yeah, got? Yeah, this dog is going to take a nap Any later. concluding thoughts? Um. Yeah, it's kind of general broad, but I love the fact that we're doing like biology and science equals hunting. Like that's just awesome for me, and I hope we can continue to do that and have more biologists on. But on the digital radio program, on the digital radio program. But yeah, man, I feel like all hunters should be thinking, you know, with this mind frame, you know, and and yeah. looking at it that way. I hear you, man. It's so advantageous. I recently, I, I gave a talk at a, at a thing, and um, after I gave this talk, well, as I was preparing for my talk, I was noticing my wife, for what she was doing, she was working on a project, and she had a lot of unusual magazines around our house. And I noticed the big thing in magazines, anyone who stands in a checkout line will see this. Everything's like, top, you know, um, seven things to make for dinner. Or like 49 ways to blow your man's mind in bed. Or like 101, you know what I mean? Like lists are big. And my wife was even telling me that an odd numbered list does better than an even numbered list. People, when you say top 10, people think they're being bullshitted. If you say 11, they're like, woo. <laughs> like, yeah. why 11? <laughs> and they, they want to read it more. So anyhow, at my end of my thing, I had seven things that I think hunters should be doing. And one of those seven was 
why not spend more time learning about ecology and biology? Like from real places. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially if you can figure out how to read the abstracts of peer-reviewed wildlife journals. That, if nothing else, you'd be a better guy to talk to in a bar. Because you'd be like, you know what? You'd be, able, you'd be the kind of guy that gets to go like this. You'd be saying, you know what? That's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> That's not exactly what happens. You're wrong. I read it in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, is that it for your concluding thought? Yes, sir. Garrett? To coattail that, it was, it was very enjoyable to hunt and hike with Carl because of that fact. Like little tidbits you'd point out that you knew because of your studies that otherwise, you know, would have gone unnoticed by someone like me. So that dude's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. He introduced me to the word mesic, and then the opposite of mesic is Zurich with an Zurich. X. So Greek? Carl was, was describing a ridgetop as being mesic, meaning it was relatively moist by southwestern standards. Yeah. yeah, so this is one of the things we didn't get to talk about. Carl is, uh, tell me what you, I know what you do, but just give me, give me tell, tell everybody what you do All right, so for a living. I work as the Southwestern Regional Wildlife Ecologist for the Forest Service. So pretty much anything related to wildlife monitoring and research type stuff in the Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, on the Forest Service's 20.6 million acres of land is uh, under the purview of my position. And by those 20.6 million acres of Forest Service land, I mean the land that belongs to all of your to listeners. American people. To all the listeners, to everybody around this table. And, and that's, in a way, the world's people. That's true. Because if you're a German and you come over here, they're not like, oh, even let me a see German, your passport. Even yep. a German can go out there. Yeah. Chris, got any concluding thoughts? Um, yeah, I learned that you shouldn't go working up a bear den without some sort of poking stick. <laughs> He, he made a personal note. I saw you make a little note on your phone. Yeah, there. I was like, you know, I better call. Excuse me a minute. I gotta call my wife. <laughs> Tell her to remind me of something when I get home. Carl, concluding thoughts. I agree wholeheartedly that you know I think hunters, I think hunters do innately have a desire to know more about the places and the species that they hunt. So they have the desire to know more. I think so. Yeah, I think it's I a, it's a natural thing, a natural fascination. And, and um, that was what, it, w- it was experiences as a hunter and fisherman and just kid growing up outside that led me on this career track. And this career track feeds directly back into how I appreciate those activities even more now than I did then. It's like a, it's a, a feedback loop of sorts. Yeah. The more I learn, the more I like to hunt, the more I hunt, the more I want to learn, you know? And if people feel that intrigue, if that's something that resonates with folks, you should, you should explore that when you're out there, you should take the time to note a question that you have and pursue additional information. And you should be trying, trying to find ways as individuals to be, more than takers from these places. If there's a place from which you are taking a resource, you should feel like you have a stewardship responsibility. Yes. Um, my concluding thought is, I love it that, and I didn't know about this, I, I knew roughly this about you, but I didn't know all the way about you, that um, you got your start on your own hunting squirrels. You're darn right. Carl's telling me in Michigan, where Carl grew up and I did too, uh, deer season opener is November 15th. And Carl's telling me about one time he went out 
on a squirrel stroll on November 15th and got uh, hollered at by a deer hunter, which I kind of love. But you turned a love of squirrel hunting into doing like very important work in our understanding and preservation of wildlife. I appreciate the kind words. but I'd, Squirrel hunter to de- bear den digger. I would counter that uh, squirrel hunting is in and of itself important work. Yes, that, that point, point well taken. There you have it. Wisconsin Super Sow, Dr. Carl, Malcolm. Can people look up your work online? Is sure. that, yeah. Do they got to go to JSTOR and pay for it, or can they find stuff? There's some stuff on there for free. The can best, they find the abstract of the Super Sow story? Oh, yeah. yeah. The best, uh, the we'll best, put some stuff online, too, man. Good. We'll put stuff online, and we'll put some of those, some of those little maps showing what these bears roaming around. Let's do that. Yep. All right. Next time, Carl's going to talk about stuff that he's been doing recently and not stuff he did a long time ago. Sounds good, buddy. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or T-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.